Hey everybody and welcome to Season 2 of No Root, No Fruit, A History of Folk Roots and Americana Music, One Record at a Time. Season 2 was made possible by the generous support of almost a hundred listeners who were able and kind enough to donate to a successful Kickstarter campaign. If you like what you hear, check out the transcripts and links for each episode at NoRootNoFruit.com. While there, you can also make a direct donation to keep the podcast coming. You may also choose to become a sustaining contributor through my Patreon page. All those options, including access to the episodes in Season 1, are all at NoRootNoFruit.com. Now let's get this show started. I'll begin this episode of No Root, No Fruit with a riddle. What do William S. Burroughs, George Carlin, Thelonious Monk, Martin Mull, Laurie Anderson, and Steve Martin all have in common? Answer, they've all been identified as the source of the quote, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Let's face it, the magic of music is difficult, if not impossible, to describe adequately using words. And really, why should you? We could just listen. So many elements make up the sound created by Kate and Anna McGarrigal. Their French-Canadian and Irish heritage, their love of old-time Appalachian music from the States, and their early exposure to the folk music of Stephen Foster and the singing of Edith Piaf. that happens when brothers sing with brothers, brothers sing with sisters, and sisters sing with sisters, you know, blood harmony. Strong, go and dig my grave. 
You're listening to the voice of Heim Tannenbaum, a lifelong friend and bandmate of the McGarrigal family. I say family because their circle of friends and family played a big role in their overall sound and their live performances. I caught up with Heim and asked him about being part of the inner circle since his early teens. Well, if, if you talk to Anna, I think she'll confirm that um, m- music was... It wasn't our professional life. It was our social life. Wherever we went, we, we, we took our instruments. We'd watch hockey games and play along and sing along. We'd drive to New York and sing from Montreal to New York. In concert, there was no fake. There was, I mean, it wasn't an act. You saw us at home on the stage, you know, wondering who should play what instrument and what key is this in? I was like, I don't know what keys in. This loose and informal approach to music and performing is one of the many things that set the McGarrigals apart when they emerged on the musical scene in the mid-1970s. Some may argue it worked against their commercial success, and some that it is exactly what defined them. Kate and Anna, along with their older sister Jane, were surrounded by music literally their whole lives. It was and continues to be a family tradition. Don't mind, don't mind, don't mind what the people say. The subject of this episode is Kate and Anna McGarrigal's self-titled debut release on Warner Brothers Records. It was recorded in 1975 with some of the best studio musicians of the time and released at the very beginning of 1976. Anna was already familiar, to those who read liner notes, for her songs like Heart Like a Wheel, famously recorded by Linda Ronstadt in 1974, and the work song which appeared on Maria Maldor's hugely successful debut record in 1973. The co-producer on that first Maria Maldor record was Joe Boyd. Joe went on to produce, along with Greg Prestopino, the debut recording of Kate and Anna McGarrigal. Here's family friend and musician on those sessions, Heim Tannenbaum. You asked what I remember from those sessions. I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to be a, a kind of pretty useless correspondent. It, it was, as you mentioned, a long time ago. Peter Weldon, I, and Dane Lankin came down to do some background vocals. And it's I, I, I don't think we were there so much because we had unique musical contributions to make, but because we had played with Kate and Anna for oh, decades, and they were comfortable with us. They knew what we would do or could do. And then Peter and I played a little bit on the record, too. I, I remember how pleased I was to meet Jay Unger and how much I liked his playing. I'm sorry to be such a, a poor seam of information. The guy who is a rich seam, because his memory is so good, is Joe. He means Joe Boyd famed producer of some of the most iconic albums and artists of the last several decades, including Fairport Convention, Nick Drake, The Incredible String Band, Early Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix. You get the idea. By my calculations, Joe would be in his early 80s by now. Turns out he was also living in London. It also turns out he was not only willing, but rather eager to talk about being a friend of the family and the co-producer of Kate and Anna McGarrigal's self-titled debut recording. Here's Joe. The genesis of the first Kate and Anna McGarrigal album was really with the first Maria Moldor album, 
which I co-produced with Lenny Warrenker. And Maria brought to us a song that she had learned from a singer in New York that she knew called Kate McGarrigal. And the song was called Work Song. It's a wonderful song with sort of referencing, you know, old minstrelsy and old-fashioned songwriting, Stephen Foster, but in a very wry and knowing and kind of hip way. We loved the song and it wasn't, you know, a single or anything, but it was a very important track on the album, I think. And the rec- because of Midnight at the Oasis, obviously Warner Brothers wanted soon thereafter to do another Maria Moldor record. And so Lenny and I got together with Maria to talk about material. And I said, are there any more songs from Kate McGarrigal? Let's, let's um, you know, can you, can you get another selection of songs from Kate? That would be great to hear. She said, yeah, I'll ask her. At some point, Maria produced a cassette And on the tape, I'm not sure if it had anything else, but it definitely had a song called Cool River. And Lenny and I loved the song. We thought, absolutely, this is perfect. And one of the things about the tape was that it had these beautiful harmonies. And Maria had always talked about Kate, just Kate. Kate McGarrigal, she's a singer in New York. She wrote songs. Here's a cassette. So I kind of, without really investigating it, I assumed that the harmonies we were hearing, because the the second voice was so similar to the lead, I kind of assumed that it was Kate multi-tracking herself. I thought the harmonies were great. So when we were planning the album, I suggested, let's bring Kate McGarrigal out here to reproduce those harmonies with you, Maria, on your recording of Cool River. Great. Okay. So I got a phone number. I called Kate and she said, well, you know, I've just had a baby. So can I bring my sister? And there was somehow in the conversation that led me to think that her sister was coming along to help her look after the baby. That was why the sister was coming. And this was the 70s at Warner Brothers when Neil Young was selling 10 million copies and Joni Mitchell was selling 10 million copies. And it was the golden age of major labels and budgets were the kind of things that producers today can only dream about. So I said, yeah, sure, we'll send you a couple of plane tickets for you and your sister, put you up at the Chateau Marmont. And so... Kate and Anna flew to LA and went to the Chateau Marmont. And the next day they were picked up and taken out to the studio in San Fernando Valley with little Rufus in a basket. Once everybody had gotten acquainted, I said, will you play the song? And Anna sat down at the piano. And I didn't even know that Anna played or sang or anything. And they then proceeded to sing the harmonies together with the two voices. And I just, 
almost fainted, you know, because I thought this is the most beautiful sound, these two voices. And I didn't even know Anna sang. So anyway, so in the end, we did a Maria's version, I think has on at least part of the song, a three-part harmony with Maria singing the melody. Kate and Anna had a harmony around the melody. I have tried to go At the end of the session, I went to Kate and Anna and I said, um, do you have more songs? You know, do you, is there more stuff here like this, like work song? And they said, well, yeah, we do write. We have, we have a number, quite a few songs, actually. I went to Lenny, who was my co-producer, but also an A&R official at Warner Brothers. And I had a meeting with Lenny and Mo Austin. And I said, I think you've got to sign these girls. These, they're fantastic. And they said, well, okay, but let's, let's do a demo. Let's see how it sounds on a demo. And I think I had to go to England for some reason. And Greg Prestopino, who had done some singing on Maria's record and who I knew for many years and who knew, I think he knew Kate from New York. He supervised the demo session. And in an afternoon, they did, I don't know, 15 songs or something. I mean, it was just amazing. They just reeled off all these songs, all the classics, Mendocino, Heart Like a Wheel, you know, one after another. And when I heard this demo and I, I you know, Lenny and Mo heard it and we all went, okay, yeah, let's do a record. In 2011, Joe Boyd produced a three-CD set called Tell My Sister, a remastering of Kate and Anna's first two records and a bonus CD of outtakes and demos, the very demos they heard that convinced them to sign and record the McGarrigal sisters. Well, this is what they heard. Talk to me of Mendocino Closing my eyes, I hear the sea must I wait? Must I follow? It was pretty standard for a singer-songwriter to assume that if they went into the studio, they would go in with a rhythm section, that it would not be just guitar and voice or, you know, with a fiddle and a accordion or something. It would be the way that Joni Mitchell, the way that James Taylor, the way that all these people were recording at that time. And, you know, if you record in L.A. or New York for a major label and you've got a major label budget, you, you know, you book the best. We scheduled the start of the sessions and I insisted on using John Wood, who was the engineer that had recorded Nick Drake and Fairport Convention and Incredible String Band with me in London. And he flew to New York and we booked Columbia Studios, which is this fantastic old studio in um, Midtown. It's a wonderful, wonderful room. And I think it was even on the very first session, we had Stephen Gadd and Tony Levin, which was the 
ultimate rhythm section in those days, you know, the best, Gad is God, uh, was scrawled on, <laughs> you know, men's room walls in recording studios. First thing they threw at him was a waltz, you know, in the jigsaw puzzle of life, I think. And Stephen Gadd, I remember saying, wow, I haven't played a waltz in a long time, you know. Now the puzzle is faded, half the pieces are lost. It was just, I don't know, one of those experiences as a producer that was just magic. I mean, it was just fantastic. These great songs, the musicians who were asked to play on them were delighted and surprised and inspired by the songs. You know, we recorded a number of tracks in New York at that studio, then went out to California and did some more recording out there. And we just felt as we were going along, my goodness, this is just such a classic. This is just such a wonderful record. There were a few hiccups on the Maria Moldor records. We always chose a couple of tracks to add strings just to give it a little bigger sound, which I had never been a big fan of, but I'd sort of been converted by Lenny Warrenker and the atmosphere of the time that this was something that could work if you did it in a restrained and tasteful way. My work before that, I'd been, I'd moved to California to take up a job as the head of music at the film company. And I didn't really enjoy it that much. I didn't have that much of stimulating experiences. But the one film composer that I met and really got along with was a guy called Michael Small, who did the film score, the score for a film called Clute, starring Jane Fonda. And he was great. He was really nice and smart and his score was really good. And and he mentioned to me that he'd always really wanted to write arrangements for rec records, just for rec recording artists. I gave him the demo of Mendocino and asked him to write a, um, an arrangement for that. And so we recorded Mendocino with his strings and he booked, I was slightly alarmed on the list of what he needed. He ordered some kettle drums and I said, kettle drums, you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 kettle drums. So we had kettle drums and a, and a percussionist there. And every time at the end of the chorus, you know, there'd be this fat, you know, little thrump of kettle drums. I said, no, 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 let's, let's not have that. But he really wanted to hear the kettle drums. So the kettle drums came in at the very end, at the repeat, as we faded it out. And you can hear on the record, you know, just as you're about to hear the last gasp of Mendocino, there's this the thump in the distance. Talk to me
must I follow? Won't you say, come with me? Kate had played me a song that she'd written because she was going, you know, she'd been through a very trying time. You know, she'd broken up with Loudon after Rufus was born. And by the time we were sort of in the middle of the record, she and Loudon had got back together again long enough to conceive Martha. But it was a very emotional roller coaster for her. And the original breakup with Loudon had been very painful. And she'd written a song about it called Go Leave. And she played it to me. And I said, oh, my God, that's so beautiful. That's wonderful. We have to make that one of the... And she said... I don't know. I'm not sure I can do it. You know, I'm not sure I can handle recording that song. And certainly I don't want to do it surrounded by a bunch of session musicians. She said, maybe sometime during the course of the sessions, there'll be a moment when it might be okay. And we were in California and we had done, I think we'd recorded that day, we'd recorded the basic track of Heart Like a Wheel with Janie was out there. Janie, the third sister, was playing organ and Kate and Anna were singing. Uh, we had a, a great pair of jazz guys, LA jazz guys, Red Calendar on bass. And um, uh, I can't remember his name. And we recorded Blues in D. great it was just such a wonderful day we'd had this fantastic day and the guys the bass player and the clarinet player that played on blues and d were just cool and great and they loved the song and there was this really nice atmosphere and then they left leaving just me and john kate and anna and janie in the studio and i looked at kate and i said now and she said okay and she got her guitar and she went out and we just mic'd up voice and guitar and we recorded Go Leave. this is probably sentimental, exaggerated, apocrypha, but I saw it through the glass and I still feel that I can hear it when I listen to that take, that on the last verse, but you are stalling when a heart can be, you know, heart, a true heart is calling, you know, that sort of heart rendering last line. I saw the tear come out of her eye and fall on the top of the guitar. <laughs> I swear that I always hear that little drop of tear on the guitar as I listen to that song. Hearts have a way of calling when they've been. 
Once all of the songs have been recorded, the mixing process begins. Mixing is the delicate marriage of art and technology that produces a record's final sound. How will the instruments and voices be balanced? What should the stereo effect sound like? If there were several takes, which ones do you use and which ones do you discard? A difficult process in the digital age, even more difficult when it's all on tape. It was all razor blades and splicing in 1975. Joe Boyd moved this phase of the recording process to SunWest Studios in L.A. And so we set up in SunWest and started to mix it. And it wasn't so easy. You know, there was a lot of dithering and kind of discussion and remixing and stuff like that. And at a certain point, John had to go back to London, John Wood. But by this time, an old assistant of his who had worked for him in London had moved to L.A. and was working in L.A. at Electra. He came in to sort of take John's place. And Roger and I spent this incredible two days in SunWest mixing Heart Like a Wheel, those backing voices. And each line, (laughs) you know, had we, we ended up mixing kind of line by line and getting out a razor blade and sticking the stereo that we just mixed for that line onto the master that we'd gotten up till there and then moving on to the next line because, you know, the second take of Anna's Harmony wasn't as good as the third take of Anna's Harmony and we had to, you know, rearrange the echo and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It was one of the most complicated mixes I've ever been involved in. Luckily, you listen to it now and you... You can't tell, of course, that's always true of any mix. Whatever it is, it always ends up being definitive. But then Roger was busy. And also I wasn't, we had, still hadn't mixed Complaint pour Saint Catherine and we hadn't mixed Kiss and Say Goodbye. And, and somebody recommended Dennis Dragon to me. I just thought he was great i'd worth a try i was was, i was sort of groping because i didn't i really was desperate to get the sound consistent and the sound good and dennis was a wild card because he was a surfer he was part of the carmen dragon family you know who used to be the conductor of the pasadena orchestra for on nbc radio and his son doug and was the captain of the Captain and Tennille. And then there was another dragon that played with the Beach Boys. And, you know, there was like these three dragon kids. And Dennis was the wildest. And he turned up to mix the McGarrigals in a bathing suit and a sort of torn T-shirt and a miner's helmet with a spotlight and two whippets. The whippets sat very quietly under the mixing board He'd never heard anything like the McGarrigals, but he just got it right away. He was engineered the mix of Complaint pour Saint Catherine and Kiss and Say Goodbye. Make love to 
When the record was released in January of 1976, Kate was pregnant with her second child, Martha. This prevented the sisters from touring in support of the new release. Now, this alone would have caused most new records to quickly slip into obscurity. The success of their live performances in the UK and the accolades they received from the press revitalized the popularity of the record on both sides of the ocean and cleared the path for a decades-long career. A career that never veered from the importance of being surrounded by friends and family. Kate McGarrigal died in 2010. Anna, along with their older sister Jane, wrote a beautiful book about the family history called Mountain City Girls in 2016. My next guest on this episode about Kate and Anna McGarrigal is Canadian singer-songwriter Eve Goldberg. Eve is a recording and touring artist based in Toronto. She also helped found Common Thread, a large community choir that sings music from everywhere. In addition, she also performs and records with Jane Lewis in the duo called Gathering Sparks. Her work as a musician and organizer in the folk music community earned her the esteemed Estelle Klein Award from Folk Music Ontario in 2021. Kate and Anna McGarrigal's self-titled debut release was part of her life from a very early age. I don't have an experience of the first time hearing this album, remembering that first time. The album came out in 1975, I think, and I would have been eight years old then. What I do remember is that my mom, my mom must have bought it at some point because it was in our house. So I don't know if it was right when it came out or within the first you know, year or two that it was out, but it was certainly around our house when I was growing up. What I remember about hearing them and listening to this album is just first, I think the sound of the voices and how unusual their, now I can put a name to it, how unusual their vocal arrangements were. But at the time, I don't think I realized exactly that's what it was. They just sounded different. And then I think also in there someplace was the mixture of musical styles that was so different. The way they brought together their different influences and then in some cases the way they chose to arrange some of the songs. You know, the song, my French is going to be terrible here, but um, Complain pour Saint-Catherine, just like the weirdest combination of sounds. I don't think I understood it, but it, I, it fascinated me. And even now when I go back and listen to it, I'm, it's, it's intriguing what they did with that song, how they arranged that song and the styles they brought together in that song. And that was someplace in the middle of the record, I think it you know kind of pops up and you're like what the heck is that i think i remember just being really intrigued by them because they sounded so different
Around that time, I got my first guitar. My mom bought me a guitar. She was a lifelong folky who had many of the albums you've already profiled on this podcast in her collection. At that point, I don't think I thought of myself as a musician. You know, now, you know, in preparation for this, I've been listening to the album again quite a bit and just being, again, really blown away by so many different aspects of this record. Like, it's just something about it is really perfect to me. So the song Blues and D to me is a really interesting example of, I think Kate wrote that song and she sings, sings it. And it's in this style that's like early jazz. There's a little jazz combo playing and she's playing piano. It sounds like one of the old classic blues singers, the kind of melody, except her voice is quite different. Her voice is not like a traditional um She's not a Bessie Smith exactly, or Ma Rainey. You know, she doesn't have that type of voice, but she has a way of singing this kind of music that just goes right to your heart. I asked Eve Goldberg if she remembered being impressed by the astounding lineup of studio musicians. As a kid, I had no clue about that. And it actually wasn't until I went back to listen to the album for this podcast that I started reading very carefully through the liner notes and my jaw was just dropping every single song. Tony Rice, David Grisman, Jay Unger, Steve Gadd, Tony Levin, um, who else is on there? There's Greg Prestopino, Lowell George, all these people, you know, scattered all over this album. And I had no idea as a kid that that was part of what made this album so perfect. So I grew up mostly in Massachusetts until I was 14. So my family moved around a little bit, but at the time when this album came out, we were living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, you know, had quite a burgeoning folk scene, you know, that my mom was kind of involved in to a certain degree. So that's kind of where I was hearing this music first. And then we moved to Toronto when I was 14. My mom and I got much more involved in the folk scene. Foolish you, you want to go away Seeking fortune's favor on your own While the one who stays beside you Foolish me, is left alone I once opened for them, actually. <laughs> Um, well, actually, I totally forgot about that until this second. Uh, it's, uh, it's a funny story. I 
when I bought tickets to see them at Hughes Room in Toronto, which uh, is, you know, one of a premier listening room in Toronto. And um, I had just bought tickets because I wanted to see them. It's a nice, intimate venue. Um, I know I knew the people who were running the club. I played there at different times, different circumstances. And uh, I walked in. You know, it's a place where you can eat your dinner and then the show happens after. So I came in with my partner ready to eat my dinner and the owner and manager of the club saw me come in the door and said, would you like to open for Kate and Anna McGarrigal? <laughs> you know, I'm there in my uh, like lousy t-shirt and, uh, you know, dirty jeans or whatever. <laughs> and I said, I don't have my guitar, I do, you know. And um, so I borrowed Kate's guitar, I think. And uh, I think they had not planned on having an opener. Something, some mix up happened where there wasn't anybody scheduled to open for them, but they, for some reason, needed an opener. So uh, I got up and played, you know, six songs or whatever, and then sat down and enjoyed the rest of the show. Um, and it was, uh, it was amazing to meet them, you know, I, uh, they were very lovely people and uh, very kind and, um, and that was my only time that I crossed paths with them directly, you know, but it was certainly <laughs> memorable. Go No more am I for the taking But I can't say that my heart's not aching It's breaking in There's so much to learn from this album from the perspective of, you know, as a musician, thinking about a, you know, putting together a collection of songs, the way that the uh, songs move from style to style, the way that the production moves from from everything from, like we were talking about before, big orchestral or our sort of large rock ensemble to this completely heartbreaking solo guitar and voice. You know, that song, Go Leave, has got to be one of the most devastating songs ever put on <laughs> to vinyl or tape or whatever we want to call the medium now. So you can just, the emotion and the singing and the beautiful guitar work on it, it's just uh, incredible. And it's sort of placed in there in a beautiful spot on the album, like second to last um, track of the album. We could sit and talk till words were coming out our ears, not just for days or weeks or months, but it's been years, and here they come, here come my tears. So now I guess it's time to dance about architecture. The power of the sound of this record, these voices, these songs, it's almost impossible to describe with words. So I'll let all three of my guests have one more shot at it. First, co-producer Joe Boyd, then singer-songwriter Eve Goldberg, and finally, lifelong friend of the family and musical sideman, Heim Tannenbaum. 
Here's Joe. Even at a time when I think a lot of people were, you know, families would gather around the radio or the television in the evening, not the McGarrigals. You know, they lived outside of Montreal. And they, the, the money-making idea that the father had finally after struggling with different things was to open a, a kind of a motel, like a, a kind of travel court, you know, like little cabins that could be rented out to tourists in the ski area and the summer area of the Laurentians. And they had a big house in the middle of the motel with a piano. And they, and they didn't have a television. They didn't listen to the radio. They used to sit around in the evenings and sing. And as the girls got old enough to have a strong enough voice to sing, they would kind of be told, find your part. You know, mom and dad have got the melody. <laughs> you know, if you want to be part of this, you find a harmony. There was less and less room so they had to be more and more inventive about finding their harmony. So the harmonies got more complex and thicker as you know the three girls sort of grew up and were added to the mix. And I think those evening competitive evenings of making sure that you weren't left out, you know, they had to fight for their spot and they had to be inventive and they had to come up with notes. This summer I went swimming, this summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath and I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around, moved my arms around. They had unusual voices for where they got to with their careers and all that. There's some of the French Canadian and Irish sort of roots that they come from come out in their voices. but. This thing of the way they put their voices together. There's Kate and Anna, who are a lot of it, but they also sang a lot with their sister Jane. Their sister Jane is in there. And that sisterly blend is just, it's something else. And again, not standard arrangements. I went somewhere recently and saw a live video, you know, footage of Kate and Anna singing think it was oh maybe it was talk to me of mendocino and so it's just the two of them in a little club you know from 1979 or something like that and let the sun set on the ocean i will watch it from the shore so you can really hear what they did just with the two voices. I was really surprised at the parts that, I guess in that case it was Anna was doing the harmony parts. She's below, she's above. It's all over the place, but it just totally works. It's um, not, I guess, doesn't obey the sort of classical rules of harmony <laughs> writing or whatever. I think the most important thing about their harmony is that they are not interested and weren't interested in just filling out a chord. They were interested in interesting chords and funny inversions. And even when we were kids, I knew them from uh, my early teen years on. And we played at home and we played in local folk clubs, that sort of thing. There was nothing about Peter, Paul, and Mary Kingston Trio about them. They, they reached for odd harmonies. They liked the odd notes, uh, the odd inversions. And I think that's what really marks them. And it's all- 
Thanks again to Heim Tannenbaum, Joe Boyd, and Eve Goldberg for helping me shed just a little light on the amazing self-titled debut record, Kate and Anna McGarrigal. Root No Fruit is hosted, produced, and written by me, Matt Watroba. I absolutely love doing this work, but it takes time. If you'd like to keep the podcast going, please consider heading over to NoRootNoFruit.com to make a direct donation or to join the growing number of sustaining subscribers on my Patreon page. I'm also eager to hear your thoughts, ideas, and questions about the podcast, so feel free to drop me an email from that page as well. You can also just join our growing Facebook group. Thanks again for funding Season 2 with a successful Kickstarter campaign, and I'll be back with more in a couple of weeks.